Famous Amos chocolate chip cookies are so iconic that I just say Famous Amos and it's like I can taste it. Each cookie is filled with semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch. And the word satisfying is very key there because some cookies are crunchy and brittle, and I don't like that. But Famous Amos has a deep, tooth-sinkable, satisfying crunch that I know and love. And Famous Amos classic bite-sized chocolate chip cookies are bringing back the original recipe that everyone knows and loves. One perfect bite, everything classic in a cookie. Find Famous Amos cookies anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. There's nothing better with a with a pizza than Diet Coke, in my opinion. <laughs> I, I will I will drink that in that scenario until the day I die. You can <laughs> take it from my cold dead hands. <laughs> <laughs> this is the Sporkful. It's not for foodies. It's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman. Each week on our show, we obsess about food to learn more about people. And today we're presenting a rapid-fire roundtable discussion of flaming hot news in the world of food. Some of it's substantive, some is silly. I think it's all pretty surprising. And based on a poll I conducted on Instagram last night, we're calling this format a salad spinner. I'll have you know that Sporkful engineer Jared O'Connell recorded his own salad spinner in his own home for that sound effect. Bespoke sound effects here on the Sporkful. Do you see the lengths we go to for your enjoyment? By the way, if you followed me on Instagram, you would have been able to vote in that poll. You would have been able to help and have creative input in our show and determine the name of this segment. So please do that. Follow me at the Sporkful. Anyway... Joining me to talk about these spicy morsels are two very special guests. The first is Amanda Mull, a staff writer at The Atlantic who covers health and American consumerism. As you can imagine, that means she covers a lot of food stories. Hey, Amanda. Hi, Dan. And coming to us live from Chicago, we have Dennis Lee, a staff writer at The Takeout and creator of the Substack Food is Stupid. Hey, Dennis. Good morning. Real quick, I would like to just share with listeners a little bit about each of your respective lines of work. Dennis, what is Food is Stupid? Uh, Food is Stupid is my personal substack. I'll do like cooking experiments on it. People like it when I do things like deep fry entire fresh truffles and then dip them into ketchup. Because why not? <laughs> <laughs> like I, I entertain my most childish impulses that way and I, I'll, I'll do things like that. Got it. And Amanda, what about some of your favorite food stories to cover in recent years? God, there's so many. <laughs> I wrote something a while back about why or why not people should eat three meals a day. And that was sort of like a mid-pandemic thing about like how people's eating habits had changed as their like scheduling circumstances had changed. I've written some fun stuff about like how breakfast is a false concept and you should eat whatever you want in the morning. But I, I think that both of you are people who are not afraid to question conventional wisdom around food. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Whether it means deep frying truffles or explaining why you can eat anything you want for breakfast and might not actually need three meals a day, you know, there are no sacred cows in this group. So that's why I think that uh, that you're both perfect folks to help us kick off this salad spinner concept. Now, I've asked each of you to bring two stories to share. So let's talk about those first, and then later we can do a lightning round. I got some I want to talk about, but let's go ahead and jump in. So, Amanda, let's start with you. You recently wrote a story about Instant Pot, the extremely popular, very successful Instant Pot. What's going on with Instant Pot? Well, Instant Pot went bankrupt or 
to be more accurate, instant brands went bankrupt. Its most popular, most famous uh, product is the Instant Pot, as you would guess from the name. The private equity company that owns the brand has said that their debts are unsustainable and they're not selling enough Instant Pots. And to remind people, like, uh, there was a period a few years ago where it's like, were you even alive if you didn't have an Instant Pot? What's an Instant Pot? The Instant Pot is a an electric um, countertop multi-cooker. The, the most popular function that it does is pressure cook, which can be a little bit intimidating to do on the stove if you're not, like, real good at it. So what they did is sort of take the stovetop pressure cooker, turn it into an appliance that you plug into the wall that is a little bit more predictable, a little bit less cantankerous. A little bit uh, less likely to have the top blow off. Yes, it doesn't explode as often. Um, <laughs> That's a good selling point. Right, right, absolutely. So, and, you know, uh, pressure cooking at home is something that is... Uh, popular in other parts of the world, but in the United States, it has never really like taken off. So this provided people with a way to do something that they had not done before. I mean, I remember when it when literally there were whole cookbooks just about what to do with your Instant Pot. What happened? Well, everybody who wanted an Instant Pot bought one. (laughs) Um, You know, (laughs) I got one too, and I was not really prepared to figure out how to use it. And it's, so, so, so what I, we'll come back to you, Amanda, but Dennis, tell us about your experience with an instant pot. Okay. So my fiance got it for me for Christmas, I think. And then I realized suddenly I had no idea what I was doing with it. Pressure cooking is like a specific type of cooking. It's not just like, right. Like the recipes are written specifically like for a pressure cooker. Right. You need to use it differently. Right. Exactly. And so I improvise a lot when I'm cooking and it's one of those things you can't just like put in something for a few minutes and then check and then do it again or like keep cooking. Right. You kind of got to go in with a plan. Right. And you have to have at least like the ballpark amount of time to put something in. So if you put something in for too long, it turns into baby food. And if you put it in for too little, there's like a buildup time that it takes to get back to temperature. So it's not like you can just like, you know, pop something back in the oven. You have to get this thing to come back up to temp. Amanda, what about you? What's been your experience with the Instant Pot? Um, I have an Instant Pot. I don't think I've ever used it. <laughs> um, you know, I cook I cook for one person, sometimes two people. So it's, it's not really like the gadget for me. The big selling point is you can just sort of set it and forget it. Which was the Crock-Pot promise for, you know, pre-Instant Pot. Right, right. At peak Instant Pot, my mom bought me an Instant Pot as a gift. And it is still in the box in the garage. I never took it out. Yeah, for me, I just feel like... First of all, you kind of hit on this, Dennis. Like, I'm kind of a tinkerer in the kitchen. I don't like the idea of putting everything. Like, set it and forget it is right. not appealing to me. Oh. I want to be able to, like, what's the opposite of that? I, I want to set it and then check on it obsessively. So one problem was that everyone who wanted one got one, so they weren't selling any more new ones. It sounds like another problem might have been that some of the people who got them, like the three of us, never used them or didn't use them very much after all. Right. They sort of hit market saturation very quickly because that's what happens with a viral product. Like a lot of a lot of the people who are at all interested in the value proposition go ahead and buy one. And what they made was a very, very durable physical product that does a physical thing. So you don't have the sort of like natural upgrade cycle that you do with like an iPhone or something like that. The larger problem, I think, though, is not with the device itself, but with what happened to it on like a corporate level, which happens to like all kinds of products, which is that a private equity company said, this is selling, people like this. Why don't we see if we can spin off more gadgets? So there was like an instant uh, stand mixer and an instant air purifier and all of these things that didn't make any sense, didn't have any connection to the instant pot. 
And in order to do this, they loaded the company with debt and like they sort of ignored the fact that like they had a pretty good idea that, uh, that appealed to some people in order to try to spread like the halo of that instant pot love to all of these other random products. Interesting. So, so they basically, they were trying to transition from a product to a brand. Yes. And in doing that, they weren't able to come up with any, any other products under this new brand that right. anybody wanted. Right. It's it's so hard to come up with just like one good idea in retail. And they had like a pretty good idea. And I think that they didn't understand why that idea was good or like that they needed white space. <laughs> like how are they going to try to outperform KitchenAid for the stand mixer market? It costs the same. It's right. not prettier. So like, what are you doing there? What What's the what's the idea? They didn't appear to have a second good idea. So what's going to happen to Instant Pot? Are they I, I, Bankruptcy doesn't always mean the end. What's next for this? product. The company is continuing to operate and intends to continue to operate. And they are going to get their debt restructured and hopefully offload some of the money that they spent trying to uh, make a worse expensive <laughs> stand mixer um, uh, and, and hopefully spend their money more wisely in the future. So I think that like the Instant Pot is going to keep trucking along. But I think hopefully some people in some uh, executive suites in this private equity company learned a lesson or two. All right, so let's see what story we have up next. Time to spin the salad spinner. Dennis, your turn. Okay. You recently wrote and talked about the Thai Burger King cheeseburger. First of all, what is the Thai Burger King cheeseburger? Okay, this is one of my favorite things in terms of fast food news. What happened was in Thailand... Burger King released this novel sandwich. These companies come out with these like stunty sandwiches and stuff all the time. But this sure, one. We all remember the double down. Right. The double down, which I actually got to go to KFC's headquarters to, to preview it. And wow. You're, you're, you're like David Pogue is to the iPhone as you <laughs> are to <laughs> fast food stunt I, well, foods. <laughs> dude, my body. I feel like my body has just been sacrificed in all the wrong ways. Like I'm. <laughs> Oh, man. But in Thailand, this is incredible. They they took a sandwich. So it's a bun with 20 slices of processed cheese. There's nothing else in it. No condiments. So it, it's a cheeseburger without the burger. Without anything. It's just cheese. So it's not even no a burger. No ketchup, no mustard, no pickle, no nothing. Yeah, nothing on it. So it's just a stack of 20 slices of cheese. And I didn't believe that it was real. So obviously, you know, you go digging around Twitter, on Reddit, on Facebook, just to see if there's some documentation of it. And right. I, I started seeing pictures of it. And just imagine you guys like biting into a stack of American cheese, 20 slices tall. I don't think the human brain can comprehend <laughs> that experience until you actually try it. So I tried it. Okay, Wait. You went to Thailand? No, I went to Burger King in my neighborhood. And so there's one Burger King in my in in Chicago that's like got higher ratings than the other ones cuz, you know. Okay. <laughs> okay. And I right. I can attest that this one is the best one I've ever been to. It's always super clean. The employees are super nice. And I went to the counter and I didn't know how to approach this, but I was like, "Hey man, uh so I got like a real weird request for you." Can you make me a Whopper with nothing in it but 20 slices of cheese? And then, like, <laughs> and, you know, this kid, his face 
so, there were gears going in the back of his his right. head. Like, <laughs> like I think I might have to call the manager. Yeah, right. So he was standing there <laughs> How do I put about this it. in the computer? <laughs> right, right, right. So I ended up explaining to him, like, I saw it on the internet, and the kid looked at me for a second, started smiling, and as soon as he started smiling, I knew I had something, and he, <laughs> he, he gave me the, you know, hold on one second, finger up in the air, and then went, right. to, went to the back and chatted with the line cook in the back. And I hear this real animated back and forth, and I hear Spanish. And my Spanish is pretty good, but it's real loud in there. And all I heard was 20, like 20. <laughs> a, re- a relevant question right, you should right, be asking right. at the moment. So, <laughs> so he comes up to the front and he goes, yeah, we can do that for you. And so <laughs> it was incredible to watch. Just like she's got this huge chunk of American cheese and she's just slapping it on this uh, Whopper bun. When we brought it home, we tried it. This is me and my fiance, and this is for my newsletter. I have never seen anything like it. It was hilarious. Like this thing was just melt like a melted mound of plastic. It was <laughs> it was shiny. It like reflected in your face. Like you could probably <laughs> you could probably see a reflection in it. And we both took bites of it right right in the middle where the pile of cheese was the tallest. And the thing had fused together from kind of like the residual heat of the toasted bun. And the one thing I didn't think about before I bit it was the amount of salt in American cheese. Right. And my mouth started burning like right away. (laughs) My eyes just started bulging out of my skull. And I was like, oh, my God. I finished the mouthful and just couldn't do another one. And I'm like, you know, Burger King's selling this to all of Thailand. Question, Dennis. You said that the the cheese had kind of all melted and congealed into one hunk. One of the things that I've gleaned from seeing it online is that it seems like different versions have different levels of meltiness. Yeah. So I I I think since you know there weren't any other orders going on, um, the employee was able to put the cheese on right after the bun was toasted, so the bun was still hot. American cheese, generally speaking, has been engineered for maximum meltability. I mean, it is the first cheese I want on my burger and um, probably one of our country's greatest contributions to world culture. (laughs) But still, as much as I love cheese and I love American cheese, I don't know that I want nothing but 20 slices of it. (laughs) I'm just imagining someone like taking a block of like deli American cheese that hasn't been sliced yet and just like biting into it like an apple. I, I can tell you that according to the New York Times, um, this cheeseburger, which is called the real cheeseburger, <laughs> was originally described as a limited time offer and was only going to be on the menu for a little while. But it was, I guess, popular enough that that time was extended. <laughs> That's not um, right. That's not right at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, what are we doing to the people of Thailand? <laughs> <laughs> Amanda? Would you try this? If, if, like, if, if you were in Thailand, you had all the glories of Thai cuisine available to you. Would you give up one of those meals to try this? <laughs> I don't know. I, uh, you know, so, something inside of me, like as a journalist, is like, yeah, try the stupid thing. <laughs> eat, eat, eat the stupid thing, so you can tell the internet what, what it's about. <laughs> so maybe, very, very, very much maybe. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, coming up, Amanda and Dennis dish out more food news. Then we turn up the heat for our lightning round. That's after the break. Stick around.
time to cook up some advertisements. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, a business tripper, or a long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. They've got over 7,000 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels, and you will get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. I especially love those Cambria Hotels. They have locally inspired hotel bars with all kinds of specialty cocktails, downtown locations right in the center of all the action. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces. That way, if you're a business traveler, you'll be able to get all your work done. On-site restaurants, fantastic. And then at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles and great pools for the whole family and spacious rooms. I mean, if you have kids, you understand the importance of the pool. If you stay at a hotel with a pool, almost nothing else matters. Fortunately, all the Choice Hotels take care of all the other stuff too, but I mean, a pool is a great start. Whatever kind of vacation you're going on, whatever kind of travel you're doing, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Book direct at choicehotels.com where travels come true. A few years back, my friend Justin Warner from Food Network moved out to South Dakota. He opened a ramen joint, and he is always posting pictures of all the great food he's not only cooking, but eating all over South Dakota. He's always telling me to come visit. And you know, one of the best ways to experience a new place is to eat your way through it. But it's equally important to live your way through it, too. And when you summer in South Dakota, you can fill up on all the lake days, hikes, rides, and small-town strolls that'll leave you with a regained sense of wonder and a hunger to do it all over again. See why there's so much South Dakota, so little time at Travel South Dakota. Dakota.com. This episode is brought to you by Merrick Pet Care. We have a dog. Her name is Sasha. She's almost four. She's a standard poodle. She's black and fluffy and soft and very adorable. And when we first got her, we took her to like this puppy kindergarten training class. The whole family went and, you know, they're teaching how to use the treats and all this. The trainer watched Sasha for a bit and said, hmm, she's very food motivated. And my daughter, Emily, turned to me and said, she's a Pashman. <laughs> And so she is food motivated, and that's why we make a point of feeding Sasha high-quality pet food. Founded in Hereford, Texas, Merrick has been crafting high-quality dog food for over 30 years. Real is Merrick's recipe, so they always use deboned meat, fish, or poultry as the number one ingredient. Now, let me tell you something. When it's dinner time, Sasha is motivated, okay? She is highly motivated to come in from patrolling the backyard at dinner, to get up off the couch. Whatever she's doing, she will drop it and come running. Check out Merrick online or in your local pet store and look for their new packaging with real ingredients shown on the bag and inside it. At Boar's Head, delicious is in the details. And you see that in their incredible selection of hummus flavors. Boar's Head hummus is expertly crafted to achieve the perfect balance of creamy texture and refined taste. You can taste those chickpeas. You can taste the tahini. You can taste a little bit of acidity. It's got it all. I especially love their roasted red pepper hummus made with fire roasted peppers. You can even taste a little bit of that char. It's perfectly dippable. It's perfectly spreadable. This is the kind of thing you always want to have on hand in your refrigerator. Dip, scoop, spread, or smear boar's head hummus to your heart's content. Hummus so extraordinary, it can only be boar's head. Compromise elsewhere. Welcome back to The Sporkful. I'm Dan Pashman. And as I mentioned, if you follow me on Instagram, you get behind-the-scenes content. You get food rants and opinions. You get to find out what I'm cooking and what I'm eating and where I'm going. And you sometimes get to vote in polls that determine the fate of this very podcast. So do it. Follow me on Instagram at The Sporkful. I recently posted a video from this Fellini factory. Got to watch the Cascatelli getting produced there. I shared my thoughts on why a club sandwich must be a double-decker. 
There's a lot more there. Follow me at The Sporkful. Another great way to keep in touch, subscribe to our newsletter. We'll send you just one email every week that includes what the whole Sporkful team is reading and eating. Plus, being on our mailing list automatically enters you into all of our prize giveaways. So sign up now at sporkful.com slash newsletter. Thanks. All right, back to the show, and I'm here today with Amanda Mull, staff writer at The Atlantic, and Dennis Lee, staff writer at The Takeout, for something we're calling The Salad Spinner. Time to spin it again. All right, Amanda, it's landed on you. I understand you brought another story for us, this one about artificial sweeteners. Yes. um, Aspartame, a key ingredient in Diet Coke and many, many other drinks and food products, is... In the news right now, the WHO recently announced that it has changed the categorization of aspartame to possibly carcinogenic, uh, which sounds terrifying. But what that means is like a little bit less terrifying. But I think it's really interesting that over time there has been this like ongoing sort of panic about fake sweeteners and about aspartame in particular that has never really sort of panned out. But this this change in designation by the WHO has given uh, the debate a little bit of new life for really no reason when you look at the <laughs> particulars. So I, I got a few questions. First of all, what does it mean to say that it's possibly a carcinogen? I mean, that that feels very mushy. Right. It absolutely is very mushy. What it means is basically nothing. There's a group within the WHO that looks at the potential to cause cancer of uh, lots of things in daily life. And uh, it has four categorizations. Starts with cancerous, which means they're pretty sure that it will increase your risk of some type of cancer. There is uh, probably carcinogenic, uh, which means they are... uh, fairly sure that this thing or substance or whatever may increase your risk of cancer to some extent. Then there's possibly carcinogenic, which is what we're dealing with right now, which means they don't really know. They cannot say that it does. They cannot rule out that it does. And then there's uh, uncategorized, which is basically, who knows? We'll, We'll deal with this later. It is really, really hard to parse out causation. So you get lots of sort of correlative things. Right. Because over the course of of days and weeks and months and years, we eat so many different things and we breathe in so many different things and we touch so many different things. And so like, like if you end up getting cancer, it's very hard to isolate one thing and be like, that thing gave you cancer. Right. And what these um, categorizations don't deal with at all, which a lot of people don't realize, is they don't deal at all with the level of risk they're flagging. So if The WHO thinks that aspartame, for instance, could potentially cause a 1% or 2% increase in risk for a very survivable, sort of relatively mild type of cancer. Then it goes in the same category as um, the level of surety that something else, a pesticide or something, might cause a tenfold increase in risk for a very deadly cancer. You're not looking at scale of risk at all. You're looking at how sure the WHO feels about the evidence that they have. So in this case, they're not making any um, particular statement about how dangerous aspartame is, and they're not making any particular statement about how how sure they are that aspartame might be dangerous in some capacity at all. And, and and was there some new study or new information that came out that led to this change in designation? 
As far as I know, not really. Um, there's been lots and lots of studies about this over the years. Aspartame has been around for decades. It's not really clear why the WHO chose to do this right now. So there's been a lot of studies on aspartame and other artificial sweeteners. And generally speaking, what have they found? They have found um, that in order to put yourself at any type of increased health risk that we can identify, that somebody would have to drink between 12 and 36 servings of like diet soda per day for an extended period of time. (laughs) That's my frustration with so much health news and reporting, which is, you know, they they do a study and they say, well, this this or that increases this or that risk. But in order to do that, they had to give the the people in the study so much more of the thing than any normal person would ever have. And a lot of times it's not even done in people. It's done in rodents. When a group like the World Health Organization makes an announcement like this and it captures a bunch of headlines that just say, aspartame, possibly carcinogenic, are they doing more more harm or more good when they put when they do something like this? Yeah, I think ultimately this ends up being harmful, especially if it's like something that an organization or, um, you know, a public health body does repeatedly. In, in communicating this stuff to the public, and the media is absolutely complicit in this because stories about something being dangerous or helpful click like crazy. So you have to be really careful about how you communicate this information to the public. And I think that like a lot of, you know, public health people, a lot of health reporters have sort of like begged the WHO over the years to change how they communicate this stuff on cancer specifically. Because if you get a, a, you know, a respected world health body going, this is possibly carcinogenic. And then it doesn't get taken off the market. It doesn't get removed from, from food or from our daily lives because there's no reason for it to be removed. People will read that headline or read like, a, you know, a couple lines about that press release and go, there is some sort of conspiracy to harm everybody's health. Uh, and the WHO has, I think, a really important responsibility to like speak in plain language to people. Agreed. Let's spin the salad spinner. All right, Dennis, you're up. What do you got for us? Okay, so you guys know the phrase or term Taco Tuesday, right? Of course. It's Tuesday when you eat tacos. Yes, exactly. So have you guys ever been to Taco John's? It's a fast food chain that's sort of similar to Taco Bell. No, I haven't been there. They used to own a trademark for Taco Tuesday, which I thought was pretty messed up. But they're small. They're not a very big company, and people have been mad at them for years for owning the term Taco Tuesday. They had it trademarked. And so Taco Bell has been in a feud with them for years to get it away from them. And Taco Bell just swung their legal fund bat at them and were just like, you know what? We got the money. We will crush you. So Taco Tuesday has now been released, I guess, into the public domain for now. Right, but so, so that's my question. Is it that Taco Bell now owns the trademark on Taco Tuesday or nobody owns it? I think nobody owns it right now. Right. I, I'm looking here. Yeah, right. Uh, uh, Taco John's uh, has announced that it's ending its fight in defending the phrase Taco Tuesday and will abandon the trademark. So that, that means that nobody will own it. Taco Bell claims the phrase should be freely available to all who make, sell, eat, and celebrate tacos. Yeah. And so I have mixed feelings about this whole thing because Taco Bell, they're huge. They're just punching down. And that's just like, that doesn't make me feel good, you know, watching that happen. It's just like, at this point, being mean in my mind uh, and just being like, well, oh, well, we got all this money, so we'll be jerks and kind of like take it away from you. But we'll call it in the for the name of the greater good. 
But really, I think they were just flexing. And what's what's a sort of a shame is Taco Bell is like one of my favorite fast food restaurants on the face of this planet. I may or may not have ordered it at ten o'clock last night, <laughs> and, <laughs> and so I don't I don't like seeing people being mean to each other. And I think essentially this was just like a mean way to take away something that you know a smaller fast food chain had. A funny postscript to this story, Taco John's owned, until it abandoned it, owned the right to use the Taco Tuesday name in commerce in every state except New Jersey, where it is still owned by Gregory's Restaurant and Bar in Summers Point, New Jersey. (laughs) And apparently Gregory (laughs) Gregory has not given up his trademark quite yet. So uh, Taco Bell may soon be running Taco Tuesday promotions everywhere but New Jersey. All right, as if the salad spinner was not already whirring away quickly enough, we're about to speed it up for the lightning round. All right, I got one that I want to throw at both of you and get your takes. So Aubrey Plaza recently appeared in an ad for milk. It was like a a, a satirical ad for a fake product called wood milk, as if like you were going to milk a tree and milk was going to come out of it. And it was sort of making fun of you know almond milk, soy milk, oat milk, all of the uh, milks being sold out there that don't actually come from cows. Um, and now according to Insider, social media users are slamming celebrities like Aubrey Plaza and Emma Roberts for participating in what some are calling cow milk propaganda <laughs> after starring in recent campaigns led by the same milk industry front group that created the Got Milk ads and turned milk mustaches into a cultural phenomenon. So, Amanda, you first. What's your take on on this ad campaign? I think all advertising is propaganda. Nobody should be looking to advertising for like objective information about anything. <laughs> um, but I, I, I think there's other grounds on which to criticize this ad campaign, which is that it's corny. It's not very inventive. It seems a little bit defensive. They can do better. Aubrey Plaza can do better. Okay, Dennis, what's your take? Uh, I agree. I think they were just, you know, trying to, the got milk people, I think they were just trying to be pretty edgy and irreverent and try to match the tone of things that they saw that they thought were irreverent. Maybe I'm jaded, but I would have just ignored the whole thing. But people were real mad at um, Aubrey Plaza for participating in it. I agree with Dennis that this seems like not something worth getting mad about. It's, you know, it was an ad that I don't think a lot of people would have seen otherwise. Uh, I think it's always a good policy. Before you get mad, before you post, ask, am I just giving this more oxygen? Is this thing that I'm mad at? Will it go away faster if I just uh, do (laughs) something else with my time? And usually the answer is yes. Dennis, we're going to keep romping through the world of weird and wacky quick hit food stories. Subway's new deli slicers have been in the news. What's going on with that? So Subway is making a big deal of now, instead of getting pre-sliced meat like they used to, they all have deli slicers on site now. And they're using that as kind of a a selling point. We're getting fresher, you know, like our food doesn't suck (laughs) or as much. (laughs) You you can tell how I feel about this, but um, (laughs) it's uh, really making me wonder whether or not for you guys, if that is a selling point, is that really going to make my sandwich better? And I went to go try some of the new ones, you know, after they started slicing them and I could not tell the difference. Amanda, what are your thoughts? This 
immediately reminds me of the salt grinder trend where like we know we, we figured we figured out as a people that it's good to grind pepper fresh that you lose something once you grind it and it sits around and like that chemical process just does not happen the same way with salt there's no such thing as fresh salt um so i i in my mind my immediate instinct is that like there is no freshness difference between like when the stuff is sliced like it's aging the same way no matter what maybe there's like an oxidation concern or something like that but if you're like stacking it in a you know stack of deli meat and sealing it and transporting it which i'm sure is what subway was doing in order to make that stuff last as long as possible i just don't think that there's a difference it's like grinding salt fresh who cares? It's a marketing thing. Right. And there's one one thing that I wanted to add real quick about it is that a lot of the spots that you can you can get food poisoning from from like a grocery store is from the deli slicer. So I'm basically just waiting for the time you hear of a listeria <laughs> outbreak and then they trace it back to Subway. Just it's it's hard to clean those things. I used to have to operate one for my restaurant job and I mean there's lots of nooks and crannies that you just like your your towel will barely get into. I, I will say, I mean, I, I'll take your word for it, Dennis, that in the case of Subway, you couldn't tell the difference. But I do think that, speaking more generally, it should be better. Because when you have one whole hunk of meat, less of it is exposed to the air. And as it's exposed to the air, the more it's going to dry out. Um, now, of course, I'm sure that Subway's deli meats have plenty of things in them that prevent them from drying out. In general, though, like it is a difference. It's a famous story in the Pashman family house. We were invited to a family friend's house for Thanksgiving one year. And the person at this uh, other house, she cooked the turkey like that morning of Thanksgiving and car they carved the entire, we arrived and the turkey was carved and we didn't eat for like two more hours. <laughs> and the turkey was just sitting out carved. And I've never encountered a drier turkey in my life. <laughs> So, yeah, that, that seems like a terrible what? idea. We we did not go back to that family's house for Thanksgiving. And to this day, probably, we are now probably 35 years since that happened. And my mom will still be like, just don't carve that turkey too early. You remember <laughs> what happened. <laughs> uh, do, do, they, do they know how you feel about that day? Did you bring it up ever in conversation? No, no. We just stopped talking to them. Oh, like all together? That's cold. That's no, cold. no, not, not all together. But like we didn't go back for Thanksgiving. I'll tell you that. You know, that's for sure. And and if you if you, I, I promise you, if I got my mom on the phone right now and said their name, that would be the first thing she would say. <laughs> you never want your food to become family lore. In that <laughs> all right, one more before we wrap up. One more spin of the salad spinner. Amanda, you're up. Okay, so there was a story in Grub Street recently that was about how all of these uh, powerful women in politics and Hollywood had decided sort of independently of each other, but but all at the same time sort of decided that it would be nice to make jam. Um, some of them are doing it as a job. Uh, some of them are doing it as just like a side hustle or a hobby. But there is uh, a lot of jam being made by people who like worked in the White House or who uh, were in movies or worked in, you know, high-powered PR jobs. Huh. Oh, what's the Diane Keaton movie where she moves to Vermont? Oh, yeah. It's like a Nancy Myers movie. Yeah. Uh, Baby Boom. Oh, yeah. Diane Keaton stars as like a high-powered corporate executive. And then a 14-month-old baby is – when a distant relative dies, a 14-month-old baby is left to her. And she ends up moving to Vermont and making jam and then using her business acumen to turn that into a 
massive business success. That's how Smuckers was born. <laughs> <laughs> so, but like, are, are we supposed to be excited about all this jam, Amanda? You know, it's very expensive jam. So if you're the type of person who like goes to specialty shops and buys expensive jam, um, you now have an expensive jam that you can serve to guests with like a fun little anecdote about it. You know, I think it is more just uh, sort of meant to be commentary on how unfulfilling it is to work in politics primarily. (laughs) (laughs) All right, real quick, final bonus addition to the lightning round. Krispy Kreme has released a candy surprise donut filled with mini M&Ms. What's your take, Amanda? Awful. Too much sugar. I don't like sweets that much. Like, this makes me feel like I'm going to have heartburn just thinking about it. (laughs) I I need more moderation. All right, Dennis. I saw a picture of this thing. I get a lot of PR emails, and I am perplexed as to how they... stuffed this thing with the M&M's because it's like, it looks like a Boston cream donut or like one of those filled donuts, but it's got nothing but like loose M&M's inside. Like, how how do you do that? And no, I won't be eating one, but I bet, I bet the fun thing is if you pick one up, it'll rattle. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder if it has like a weight to it. Yeah, probably. I I bet it does. It probably sags in the middle. I, I will say as someone who frequently orders Dairy Queen blizzards or Friendlies, Frenzies, or whatever the variation on those uh, ice cream and candy desserts. Um, I will often get vanilla with extra, 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 extra M&Ms. I tell them, look, money is no object. Um, (laughs) I want 50% M&Ms. So this, in theory, sounds great to me, except for the fact that it's mini M&Ms, which are an absolute disgrace. What? Too much hard candy shell in relation to chocolatey interior. Oh, no. Only the canonical original size of M&Ms is acceptable, so I will not be trying this treat from Krispy Kreme. Thank you very much. I'll fight you on the M&M, mini (laughs) M&M thing. That, ah. It's just candy shell. It's not enough chocolate in relation. Ratios are off. But the chocolate sucks. I mean, so does the candy shell probably. (laughs) I'm mostly eating mass-produced chocolates for texture, Uh, not for chocolate quality. uh, (laughs) I want to be able to pierce through that candy shell with my teeth and land on dense milk chocolate. I want to have that textural contrast. And in the mini M&Ms, you do not have textural contrast. You pretty much only get candy shell. I disagree, but we'll have to have this a whole as a whole episode. Another time. <laughs> All right. Dennis Lee from the Takeout and the Substack newsletter, Food is Stupid. That's at foodisstupid.substack.com. And Amanda Mull from The Atlantic. You can follow her at Amanda Mull on social media. Thank you very much to both of you. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Next week on the show, I visit my local pickle festival and dig into the story of the pickle king of Greenlaw. While you're waiting for that one, check out last week's show with queer indigenous poet Tommy Pico, who's creating his own food culture that's out now. This show is produced by me, along with senior producer Emma Morgenstern and producer Andres O'Hara. Editing by Nora Ritchie. Our engineer is Jared O'Connell. Music help from Black Label Music. The Sporkful is a production of Stitcher Studios. Our executive producers are Colin Anderson and Nora Ritchie. Until next time, I'm Dan Pashman. And I'm Catherine Mühlstein, oder auf Deutsch Katrin Müllerstein, living in Stuttgart, Germany, reminding you to eat more, eat better, and eat more better. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This November, I'm going back to Italy, leading a food tour there, and I want to brush up on my Italian. And for that, I'm turning to Rosetta Stone. It's the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. And for a very limited time, Sporkful listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash sporkful. That's half off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash sporkful today. 